if I can call it a, a benefit, one of the benefits of having a, a bivocational pastor is you get a lot of work stories. <laughs> there was a, a, a guy that I worked with, and he got called into a, a, a meeting with HR. And um, this guy, I don't know if we have any Canadians with us today. I think the Canadians that we have amongst us are actually absent this morning. But they, he's got the iron ring. Does anybody know about the iron ring? The Iron Ring is, is, a, is a part of the engineering uh, guild kind of, of, of Canada. It's, it's a sign of, 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 you know, you've really given to this. You've, you've earned this. We don't have an equivalent really in America for the Society of the Iron Ring. But he had his, his Iron Ring. He's got his Ph.D. In our team, he was like the hero. He was the titan, the guy who did all that stuff. Um, and he was a terrible guy to work with. <laughs> Uh, he and I worked well together. I became his confidant. He was telling me about his, his, his struggles, his things. So he told me he got called into HR. He's like, you know, I, I don't know what's going on here. Uh, HR told me I can no longer use the bold font in my emails. <laughs> Legitimately. And I was like, I didn't know HR had that power. <laughs> the, the thing is, he was a real strong part of our team. He knew his stuff. He was a great worker. But people didn't like his character. He was uh, argumentative. He was abusive. He was, he was dismissive of people. He, he wasn't engaging. He wasn't really a, a careful person. Um, in, in danger of borrowing too much from the future of the series that we're going to be starting today, I think that this passage in 1 Corinthians 13 talks about, uh, in a very large sense, what we're going to be getting at. If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, and no, we're not at a wedding, but I do not have love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains but do not have love, I'm nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Character matters. Character matters. And I think if we are so consumed with production, making something happen, making a product, making church look or, or feel a certain way. If, if we're so concerned about the end goal that we think, I need to get there by whatever means, we've embarrassed ourselves and we've forgotten the path of the kingdom. The, the way of the cross is not just a way to achieve victory over death. It's not like some secret from a mad scientist who's cracked the code on, on giving eternal life. It's a life of humility poured out for others. The way in the, in the vineyard, we say, is the way on. The, the way we come to this life is the way we continue in this. We, we come to this through humility. You can't come for forgiveness of sins with pride. <laughs> like, it, it just doesn't work that way. So the way on in the kingdom is the way we come in. We have to be marked by those very things that brought us in and to become increasingly marked by them as we live out this life so even in this world, people, people's character bears witness and they'll pay due. There's people who struggle in loneliness and exile from family and friends. They, they've burned bridges. There's people who can no longer use a bold font in emails. <laughs> couldn't even use underline, by the way. They, they came back a second time because after he couldn't bold, he started underlining passages. <laughs> and I said, you're just circumventing. And he's like, yeah, but they don't understand what I'm saying, so I have to... <laughs> it's, like, it's like, next they're going to get you up for the highlight font. I was like, that one's going to come for you next. 
we're a Holy Spirit people, all right? We're a Holy Spirit people, but do we really know what that means? And I think that particularly in our vein of doing church, when we think about being a Holy Spirit people, we, we think about the signs and wonders and, and prophecy and, and tongues and with good reason, but when that dust settles, what is the fruit? What is our character that's revealed? Who are we as people of the cross, people of the presence? Is it bared out in our, our lives? Is it bared out in our marriages? Is it, is it, is it revealed to our coworkers that, that we follow a different order? Or are we just like, you know, trying to add a little bit of Jesus? Sprinkle a little bit of Jesus on your life and, you know, it'll be okay because, you know, when it's all over with, I'll be in heaven. And so we just need to try to get through this thing. You know, I, I'm, I'm often saddened by, by people. There was a, a very angry man who came for counseling with his, his wife. And um, he, he told me, you always seem calm, but I'm sure you yell at your wife behind the scenes. <laughs> and I was like, wow. You know, he's like, how can you, like, this is, the, we're angry people. Like, when, when you get frustrated, this has got to be it. And it, it struck me that, that this really is, character reveals itself. And, and, and if we do not understand really get what the Lord has done for us. We're prone to just mimic. So character, Christian character. It's not personality. It's not morality, though those things intersect and overlap. I want to say that again. It's not your personality traits that we're talking about. And it's not morality. And by that, I mean choosing to do right and and choosing not to do wrong. When we talk about character, character is who you are. It's it's not a thing that you just try to, to be a different way right? It's, it's not just like, well, I feel overwhelmed, so I'm going to try to act more like Jesus, you know, and, and we try to make these decisions that we think that he would make. I mean, there's a part of that in being a disciple whenever you don't know what to do, but when we're talking about character, I'm talking about actually who you are, okay? Not a choice you make whenever you can look at it logically and try to make a decision between two things. I'm, I'm not talking about who you are innately to separate, separate you from the other people, not your personality. We think sometimes about things that way. A, a kind person, well, were they always that way? There's actually one of the, the gentlest, most soft-spoken men that I've ever known. And um, he and I started talking. I got to know him later in his life. And, uh, and he, he's just a, a, a wonderful uh, representation of Christ's character. And I just said, wow, you know, I, I really just respect the way you can walk into a room and how people respond to your kindness. And he looked at me like I had three heads. And he goes, I've been angry for so much of my life what ruined my marriage. It, it's it's what, what broke apart my relationship with my kids. And you're calling me kind? <laughs> and I said, that's all I've seen. It's all I've known. And it, it brought him to tears because he wasn't trying to be a different way than what he was, but he had been brought through the character of Christ over time. It, it took time to work out. It, it did this, and it was who he was naturally at that point in his life. It's not personality that I'm talking about. It's not a moral choice. And also, it's not passive. It takes intentionality. Matt had our teaching in the parables about the different kinds of soils and then all that sort of stuff. We have to cultivate something to make this character happen. It's not a passive approach trying to just say, well, I'm just going to see what happens. I'm just going to live my life and be who I am, and y'all got to deal with that, right? Building character takes an intentionality. You, you have to spend time. There's no shortcuts to this. So this 
whole ambition of this series that we have now going up through Christmas, well, we'll see. You can't come forward for ministry time and be like, done, check, my character is now complete. But we're going to be looking at a lot of things. Um, Wimber said it this way. We're being invited to extend the kingdom reign of Christ on earth in character and deed. We can't preach the good news and be the bad news. <laughs> being invited to extend the kingdom reign of Christ on earth in character and in deed, we can't preach the good news and be the bad news. In the vineyard, we also say this, it's, it's better caught than taught. Have you heard that one? That's another pity saying, you know, it's, it's, it's better caught than taught. What are you contagious with? What are your kids picking up when they're around you? What do your coworkers mimic when they're around you, you know? And, and I'm always amused at, at the people who I don't have to say a single word to, but they realize over time that Josh doesn't curse, and then they start apologizing when they curse, and I've never said a single word to them about this whatsoever. Have you ever had this experience? And, and Leah talks about this from time to time where, where people have said, I just feel so convicted when I'm around you. She's like, why? <laughs> it's, you know, it just happens sometimes where, where when it's better caught than taught. If I have to put words to this, if I have to articulate every single thing, then it's very preachy. It's, it's very annoying, <laughs> right? To have a person telling you and criticizing you and all the sorts of stuff, but it's better caught than taught. There's something about this character stuff that you know that you know whenever you get it, and it becomes evident over time. Talking about our, our worship leaders, I, I read this one from time to time because it's such a good reminder for me too. The difficulty will not be so much in the writing of new and great music. The test will be the godliness of those that perform and deliver it. In that sense, some of our worship community is not well prepared. Many have been allowed into worship leading because there's a need for their worship and musical skills, but little has been said to them about the need for godliness, spirituality, depth of maturity in their individual and family lives. Quite frankly, many of our musicians are just not steeped in a daily spirituality. <laughs> I was not meaning to just look at you. <laughs> we are not trying to make a package we're not trying to, to build a church or an institution or a 501c3. The, the, the whole purpose of this stuff is that there needs to be a community of saints that intersects with the community of this world. We are ambassadors of the goodness of, of, of God, and it's going to be borne out in our characters. We can't be one thing, we can't say one thing, and, and meanwhile be another way behind the scenes. The way that we are reveals what is growing in our hearts, what we allow into our souls. And if we're just trying to put on a, a certain form of Christianity, lacking power, I'm not interested. I, I say this again. One of the benefits of having a bivocational pastor is my income doesn't come from y'all. <laughs> I can offend you all and you leave and I'll still be like, hey, all right, let's do this thing. <laughs> because the thing is, we are not, we, the, the church cannot ever mimic the institutions of this world. We're not a company. We're, we're not selling a product. We're not trying to make some, make some race and try to make a, the whole thing. If we are not the people of the presence of God, if we are not actually transformed and changed, what are we even doing? What, what is the point of trying to do any of this stuff if we are not in ourselves different than we began? There was a mass shooting this week in North Carolina. 
I am so tired of the weeks where I stand in front of you sharing the news that you already know. It, there, there's a problem in our country. <laughs> and we all know it. We, we, don't, we argue about what the, the problem is. We argue about what the answers are, are going to be. I, that, okay. There's a problem. And I think part of the problem is the fact that we're not contagious with the right things. We are not being the people, the presence of God to those who actually need it. Either we're removing ourselves from them or we ourselves not transformed enough yet. Which either way that's going, that's a problem. But I know we're the answer. I know you're the answer. I, I believe that, that this kid, this kid who pulled the trigger to end the lives of people down the road from here, he needed godly men and women to be contagious with the presence of the Holy Spirit and lives would have been legitimately physically saved if the church were more contagious with the character of Jesus. That's not a, a judgment. That, 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 that's an assessment. It's, a, it's an assessment. It's an honest assessment of what we need to be doing because, again, if the Holy Spirit is not the answer to this, then why are we even here on a Sunday? We are here because we understand the power, the presence, the authority that, of a transformed life that has looked at the cross and the resurrected life and said, I need a better way. And we found that. We have that. But what are we going to do about that? We have work to do, church. We have work to do. I'm so concerned that we have gotten caught up in culture wars, that we've overlooked humanity, that we've overlooked our sons and daughters. We're concerned about all the ifs and the ands and all these stories and, and we wrap it up in politics and culture and all these things that it, that it might be about when we have kids in front of us and we're distracted by our phones. Where we're too busy being right that we're not being present. The overlying scripture for this whole series, by the way, the series is going to go through um, Advent. I don't know why I never realized this before, but y'all know I love Advent, and I love our, our, uh, our weeks of Advent where we talk about hope, joy, peace, love, and how well that, oversex, how, how well that intersects with um, the fruit of the Spirit. There's this beautiful interadoption between these ideas. So this is Galatians 5. You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love, for the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. If you bite and devour each other, watch out, or you will be destroyed by each other. So I say, walk by the Spirit. You will not gratify the desires of the flesh, for the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the spirit, what is contrary to the flesh, they're in conflict with each other. So you are not to do whatever you want. But if you're led by the spirit, you are not under the law. The acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I don't want to skip over that list. I bet you you can find yourself in one of these. <laughs> Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. 
I warn you as I did before that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let's not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. Such a good passage. I'm not going to be dissecting that because what, we, what I actually want us to be doing is, is going through this probably bit by bit, but looking at each of these things. And again, I told you about Advent, so you know, hey, hope, joy, peace, and love. I've got to skip down the little, a little bit. So we're going to be talking about forbearance today. So I don't know if there's any other children of the evangelical church that grew up in the uh, 70s and 80s, but um, have patience. Anybody? <laughs> Okay, I got, I, got, I, got, I got one. Don't be in such a hurry. My kids would hate me because I would sing this song very painfully slowly to them. Because it w- I thought it was a turtle. I had to look this up. This was, this was Music Machine. They had the Fruit of the Spirit. And, and they, it, it's like we had it on a, on a vinyl record. And I don't know if maybe my parents actually slowed it down, too, because you could do that back then. But have patience. Oh, my. It was so aggravatingly slow that I I always wanted to skip it. It was just one of those things where I had no patience for the have patience song growing up. Um, My kids hate that one. And I think we all kind of have a little bit of reticence when it comes to this this word. Forbearance. Long-suffering. Patience. You know, and the way that your, your, your Bible might translate it might affect the way that you understand this thing, too. I think that each of those words kind of brings some baggage to the table. So I, I don't know what yours has, but, but if I say long-suffering, what are you thinking? You're thinking, oh, I got to deal with this junk for a long time. <laughs> if I say patience, you're, you're thinking, I got to wait a long time until I get what I want. And that might be hope. Forbearance. You think, Josh, you're old. Why would you use that word? (laughs) But really, because I I don't think we use that word as much, and I think that that's in the translation that I have here. I want to go with this definition for it. Patient self-control, restraint, and tolerance. Forgive me just a little bit of Greek. I I, I got the word pulled up here. Greek is is interesting because what you really get is you get these compound words where you just kind of get like two ideas and you smack them together. That's kind of all the Greek you need to understand, all right? I got two things that mean distinct things. I smack them together, and that kind of tells me the picture of a new word. It's, it's a very utilitarian language. Um, this, this word, makrothemia, it's a very interesting one because you've got the, the words that kind of mean long passion, not even long suffering, long passion, all right? And it kind of tells you something. Waiting sufficient time before expressing anger is one of the literal definitions of it. That's a very different picture than I get whenever you're saying patience now. And also, it kind of says, I'm going to be showing my anger <laughs> at some point in time. Is that, do I get an allowance that, that at the end of, of my, my long suffering, I get to finally tell them what I really thought about them? <laughs> uh, this avoids the premature use of force, retribution, that rises out of improper anger, a personal reaction. Oh, wait a minute. 
now it kind of does make sense. Now, now it actually is telling, it's telling me that, that these things, whenever we've suffered an injustice, and we often want to re- have our retribution right there in the moment, we are responding out of something. We're reacting to something that is not yet seasoned by the character of God. When we want to fly off the handle, when we are in this moment where our passions are aroused, what we need is that pause to go with it, to sit with it, to allow God to do his working. It's a very different look now than, than what I have when patient. Oh, I got to wait for the Lord to give me an answer for this. This fruit of the Spirit is rather complex, and I'm not sure it's, it's something that we've spent a lot of time thinking about. This is um, words from Oswald Chambers. And I, I think without doing this word study, he says the exact same thing, even though he has perhaps older language than forbearance. Patience is not indifference. Patience conveys the idea of an immensely strong rock withstanding all onslaughts. The vision of God is the source of patience because it imparts a moral inspiration. Moses endured, not because he had an ideal of right and duty, but because he had a vision of God. He endured as seeing him who is invisible. A man with the vision of God is not devoted to a cause or to any particular issue. He is devoted to God himself. You always know when the vision is of God because of the inspiration that comes with it. Things come with largeness and tonic to the life because everything is energized by God. If God gives you a time spiritually, as he gave his son actually, of temptation in the wilderness with no word from himself at all, endure. The power to endure is there because you see God. Though it tarry, wait for it. The proof that we have the vision is that we're reaching out for more than we have grasped. It's a bad thing to be satisfied spiritually. What shall I render unto the Lord, said the psalmist? I will take the cup of salvation. We're apt to look for satisfaction in ourselves. Now I have got the thing. Now I'm entirely sanctified. Now I can endure. Instantly we're on the road to ruin. Our reach must exceed our grasp. Not as though I'd already obtained, either we're already perfect. If we have one, if we have only what we have experienced, we have nothing. If we have the inspiration of the vision of God, we have more than we can experience. Beware the danger of relaxed spirituality. That's a lot of, of language, and I'm going to unpack it. it was, when I read this, it's funny because it just kind of overlaps with so much of what I think the Lord was actually saying to me through all this stuff. Remember that the Greek has this idea of, 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 of avoiding a premature uh, retribution of anger. The Lord said to me whenever I, he called me to, to lead a church that a lot of what I was doing was reacting. Reacting is the lowest form of leadership. <laughs> I also want to say it's the lowest form of news reporting. Have you seen how many news stories use Twitter? <laughs> And it's like, well, what's the reaction on Twitter? Let, let's go there. I'm like, what? You're a reporter. <laughs> like, you're like, don't, don't report from that. But, but this reaction response, is, is, it's kind of the, this, this lowest bar of trying to figure out what's going on. If you want to lead, don't react, but respond, right? A response means that you've had a, a measured reaction to things. You, you know what's going on. You, you've looked at it. You've taken toll. You've counted the cost right? You understand what's coming up, and you can have a response. But then the Lord said, but there's something else. There's leading as well. 
And this is something that I, I try to tell our, our worship leaders and our leaders that, that lead ministry time and everything else as well, that, that whenever the Holy Spirit's doing something in the room, if, if it's something emotional or something big happening, we could react to that. Somebody says something to you, you, you feel like you've got to react right away. Or you can respond to it. But the highest form is to actually lead that instead. That you might come in mourning, but we're going to be led to a place of joy. That, that, that's, that doesn't take a response. That, that takes something else. That takes understanding what the target is. That takes understanding what the presence of God does and saying, no matter where we are, I know where we're going to be going with it. And so this idea of reacting is, is less than, than responding, which is less than being led. And this idea of long-suffering, of waiting, is I think exactly that. Lord, lead me out of this. Not my anger. Not, not, my anger is not going to drive me. It's not going to make my decisions be what they are. Lord, lead me through this so that at the completion of this time, I know I'm going where you want me to go. That's a very different approach to how to live life where we think I have to deal with this situation. I have to react to this. I have to respond to this. But what's the Lord actually doing? Let's sit. Let's wait. Let's be where we should be. William Shakespeare, Tragedy of Hamlet, kind of talks about one of these things that sense of, of timing is this idea of like, what should we do whenever there's something coming against us? And uh, forgive me, I don't know if y'all actually like Shakespeare or not, but this is the famous one, to be or not to be, that's the question. Whether it is nobler in the mind to suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune or to take arms against a sea of troubles by opposing end them to die, to sleep no more, and by a sleep to say we end the heartache with a thousand natural shocks. Do we fight against this or do we give in to this? What, what's the best thing to do? You know, I, I think about the civil rights. I think about the fight for equality that, that we've seen between men and women. I, I see this idea that, like, I can't take this anymore. <laughs> what, what do I do? How, at what point in time is this offense? I think about our brothers and sisters in Ukraine suffering an unjust war coming against them by a country that we <laughs> send missionaries to and we support churches in. And what is the proper response? At what point in time do you say, this is too much? At what point in time do we turn the other cheek? How do we do this? How do we... How do we live in this world where we're torn back and forth between what is passivity, what is patience, what is long-suffering, and when do we have to say, I've got to do some action about this right now? I believe fully in the Lord's leading, 100%. He will lead us through the ways of wisdom. And it may be frustrating to some of us when we feel like we're sitting down when we need to be doing something. Some of us may think that we're going too quickly whenever the Lord's actually saying, no, you need to be going right now. And the whole idea is, I think, wrapped up in this word, long passion. The passion is sustained through the entirety of it. There's an ongoing problem when passivity is presented as morality. That we deal with things and we call it virtue. <laughs> that we suffer under this whole thing and we call it, oh, I'm just being a moral, patient person. When we're not being called to be passive. This call to long passion, to long suffering, to forbearance is not be quiet, sit down, and shut up. And we can mistake these things because we don't understand the difference. It's not unique to, to patience. Fear sometimes acts like wisdom. Have you ever noticed that? Oh, I'm just going to be cautious on this one. 
Or are you being afraid? <laughs> right? Greed masquerades as wisdom. You know? Well, I, I didn't want to give them that money because, you know, who knows what they might do with it. You know, and you're really just being greedy. <laughs> but you're masquerading as wisdom. We're just acting like it is. Gossip pretends to be compassion. Oh, yeah, okay. <laughs> Passivity tries to act like patience. Passivity tries to act like patience. Passive patience is not a fruit of the Holy Spirit. As a fruit of the Spirit, it's not a choice as in, okay, I'm going to try to be godly here. That's not the idea of this forbearance. It's not just dealing with things. It's not suffering endlessly. That's torture, and we characterize that as hell. All right? I mean, let's be honest, right? Sometimes we think that we just have to deal with situations that are unjust and improper because I guess that's just my lot in life. That's not what we're talking about here. This is talking about long passion, not even long suffering, long passion for the right time, for the God-given moment when he says, now is the time for things to shift and to change. And you listen to him. You're with him in that time. You're not absent from him. You're, you're not suffering on your own. You're not in silence and, and exile from it. You're with him in that long passion. Some people think that good character is sitting there quietly, waiting your turn, and being mannerly. I was so offended when I read Job, and God is not very mannerly in that book. <laughs> He's got some cutting rebukes to people that pretend to speak for him. Dear church, I want this for us. That we know when to speak. We know when to act. Not that we give our hot takes and speak judgment on any offense, but that we are long-suffering that we are passionate for a long time waiting for the God-given moment. Biblically, I want to support this biblically. That's a good thing to do as a pastor, right? So let's try to hold these in our mind at the same time, all right? Isaiah 9-7, understanding that this was fulfilled in Christ's reign. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Whew. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Psalm 108, the Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and rich in love. I, I actually like a, a little bit better if we look at the, the one in, in Exodus 34 where it says, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty? Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. It's this understanding of he's got the right timing for how to change these things. He, I think that, that we, we mistake this. We think of this like a, as a curse of like an unjust curse of how the Lord's going to do this. He's dealing with things in his timing, in his way. He's got this. It's under his purview. He has control over this. And the zeal of the Lord Almighty will do this. Church, how many times do we think that our zeal is the answer, right? If only our worship was more engaged, you know? If only we worship like those people, then, then I'm sure that the kingdom would, would break through and, and the sky would be slit. If only everybody believed like I believed. If, if only we had passionate people doing these things, because we believe in the power of the people, that, that, that this, is, this is America. This is what we do. We, we mobilize the forces to go and to do these things. Do we believe that the zeal of the Lord will accomplish this? Or do we think it's the zeal of the believers? 
Do we understand that it's not a call to passivity to wait on the Lord God? It's not the zeal of new believers. It's not the zeal of the disciples. They wanted to make Christ king by force. They had passion for Jesus. They saw him. They heard him. They knew him. They said, I want you to be my king. Let us make him king here and now. And he ducked the crowd to find a way away. It's not the zeal of the people. It's not the zeal of the crowd. Because the Lord had a different story that led him to the cross. Had he not gone to the cross, we wouldn't be here today. The zeal of the Lord has accomplished this, not of people. Because otherwise, we're trying to sustain ourselves with emotions of a moment. We get fired up about things, a good teaching, a, a, a good thing, a good story, a, a rousing sports game. You know, we, we feel the emotion of the moment. Tennessee pulled down their, their goalpost and threw them into the river last night. I, I loved it. <laughs> I celebrated alongside them. You know, but that's going to fade when they play George in two weeks. Sorry. Uh, <laughs> I'm done, I'm done, I'm done, I'm done. But the, the emotions of the moment, if that's what's really bringing you through, it can only take you so far. We can't sustain ourselves. You're not meant to be that emotionally charged for life. Like, like that, you, you can't file your taxes in an emotional zeal like, of just like, this is it, Lord, I'm going to go for this. That's not the way this works. <laughs> it's sustained by something more than emotions for the moment. We can get confused by the emotions around God speaking because we think that we have to move now. The prophetic voice often comes with an emotional charge to it. And I get that. But is that really the driving force for this? Or is there timing? Is there something going on here? God is not impulsive. He's not quick to anger. And it sets him apart from all these other understandings of God's that we have before us. You know? And we don't really get this. And I, I mean this very seriously. Like, we don't really get this. Because when we sin and we feel conviction, we expect the shoe to fall. And we're like, ooh, oh no, I'm in trouble. Like, God's going to bust me. Like, he, he knows. I know he knows. It's going to get bad. That's not how our God works. He gives us the time to sit with him, a long passion. He's slow to anger, and he has abounding love. But he's going to work it out, even if it takes three, four generations to, to break this cycle of broken marriage, to break the cycle of, of, of anger, of, of depression, of, of how we've got addiction in our families, all these things. He's going to do that work as we sit with him and work this out. It sets him apart from other gods. He doesn't hold grudges. We feel guilty because we struggle, we fall, we expect that immediate judgment, but we understand the long, full story of the gospel is going to take root instead. Th th this is countercultural, y'all. I feel like that, that really has to be said, that, that this whole idea of, of long passion is countercultural. I was listening to uh, the band Wilco talking about their latest album release, and uh, they, they said that they just have to shut down like, from all the feedback because they said nobody can respond to that. You know, like, like you put something out there in the world, and it's like you get this immediate influx of, of voices on Twitter 
giving you reviews, either good or bad or indifferent or whatever, saying, here they go again, you know, or, oh, I'm so excited. Whatever that reaction is, they have to shut it down because they're not meant to equip that. They, they can't respond to that. They can't take in all of these thousands of voices that are critiquing and reacting and, and trying to give them feedback. We have praised the reaction and try to judge ourselves based upon a reaction instead of sitting with these things over the course of a God-given time. I, I love in the Greek that there's actually two different words for the timing of things. There's the timing when things happen, and there's the word chronos, where, where the timing when God, it's the God-ordained timing for things. I believe this idea of long passions is waiting for that God-given moment when it's going to come to light. That God-given moment, the day of the Lord, for the big things, but also the small things. The God-given moment when our sins are accounted for. That God-given moment where we understand that we are set free. That God-given moment when injustice is finally overcome by the flood of justice coming in. That God-given moment when love, forgiveness, grace does its complete work. And we are different people because of it. So it's not just God, it's people as well. It's offered as wisdom in Proverbs 16.32. He who is slow to anger is better than the mighty. He who rules his spirit than he who takes a city. And that, that leads me to think about David. David, this is one of my favorite stories in all of Scripture in 1 Samuel 24. Just a little bit of background. Saul's king, David's anointed king. David's leaving battles. He's doing great, but he's kind of on the run because Saul's a little jealous. It's not going well for their relationship. It's a little awkward. Um, 1 Samuel 24, when Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told, Behold, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. Saul took 3,000 chosen men, yeah, looking for David, out of all of Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the wild goat's rocks. And he came to the sheepfolds, by the way, where there was a cave, and Saul went in to relieve himself. That's in your Bible. Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave, and the men of David said to him, Here is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as seems good to you. David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. Afterward, David's heart struck him because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. He said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. So David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. Saul rose up and left the cave and went out on his way. Can you imagine, you're the anointed king, and here comes the reigning king, and you have your friends, your confidants saying, oh my goodness, <laughs> he's vulnerable. Like, this is, this, get him. <laughs> like, this is it. The, the Lord provided a way. This is the moment. Something in David told him, this is not the Lord's day. This is not the Lord's timing. He had long passion, waiting for the moment when the Lord would make him king. He didn't get ahead of it. He didn't try to shortcut it. He didn't do this on his own ambition, on his own timeline. There was something in David that said, not now, not like this. That would have been a very different reign if David went that way. He would not have been a man after God's own heart. He would have been a man of, of ambition. He would have been a man who takes that opportunity. He would have been a decisive leader. We might have respected that, that king for a lot of different reasons. Paul, after his conversion, y'all know Paul was like a well-studied guy, right? He waited three years before going out on missions. Three years of study. Three years of introduction. Three years of being known. Three years of being introduced. 
So kind of a weird period in Scripture. It kind of skips over this. You've got to kind of do the math to try to figure out how this was happening and what was going on with Paul at the time because you expect kind of like conversion and, uh, whoo, okay, commission. He's gone. He's good. He spent all that time training. He knows the Scripture. He's, a, he's the Jew of all Jews, and now he has Jesus. This is great. We're, we're done. There's a proper timing for these things. Time of preparation. Time of long passion, where, where he's not this zealous believer who's now going to accomplish whatever he's going to accomplish because he's going off in his passion and his zeal. But it's been tempered by wisdom. The Lord has anointed him and called him for a day that's coming. And finally, that thing that I read from uh, Oswald Chambers referred to this in Habakkuk. For the revelation awaits an appointed time. It speaks of the end. It will not prove false. Though it linger, wait for it. It will certainly come and will not delay. So the application of this is not, hey, y'all, just be more patient. <laughs> that would be a terrible end to the sermon. There's a, a very good part of this that, that means to reveal to you the character of God and his people. I want you to see God. I want you to recognize how you can see his people. I want you to be able to respond and, and to, to have this this revelation that, that God moves differently, that, that his people are marked differently, to show you what the life of a disciple can, could, and should be, and to draw you close to God so he can begin work on that. My challenge to you is that the question, are you really a person in the presence of God? Like, really, are you spending time in his presence? Are you holding these questions to him, or, or are you trusting your own emotions? Are, are, you, are you willing to wait, even though you really want to go right now? Are you soaking in his will, his heart, his character? Are you being impatient? Do you find yourselves reacting rather than responding or being led or, or, or leading?